Aloha, and thank you for joining us on our exciting adventure of walking through the New Testament as a participant in a life group. Open your heart to what God may be saying to you as we endeavor not only to hear His Word, but to obey. Here now is our Bible teacher, Pastor Jim Morocco. John the Apostle, the writer of this letter, opens the letter differently than most of the other New Testament books. He doesn't have a common salutation, for example, like Paul has, that tells us who he's writing to and where it's being sent. It is a letter that is written by a pastor to his flock for edification and warning against that which is false. The Apostle John ended his days in Ephesus, and this epistle was probably a circular letter similar to, as one person has described it, a loving and anxious sermon that was written to those churches in Asia Minor that looked to John, the Apostle John, for leadership and direction. Well, let's turn our attention to the preface of this letter, or the, in other words, the first four verses of this letter. John opens this letter with some strong similarities to the beginning of the Gospel of John. John states, the eternal Son existed before his manifestation in this world. This can be in that John states, and I quote, that which was from the beginning, and he also quotes, was with the Father. These two phrases really sound quite similar to John chapter 1, verse 1, when John states in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The eternal Son has invaded human time and space, and John says, we heard him. But hearing God's voice was not unique, for many in the Old Testament heard the voice of God. But John goes on to say, we saw him with our own eyes. But not only did we see him, but John states, we beheld him. This particular word in the Greek suggests a deliberate gazing upon. But more than that, it is grasping, if you will, the significance and the meaning of what is being seen. For example, you see, a person can see a particular event, but really not know what it means. But the Greek here would suggest that when you behold something, the meaning of what was taking place is also known. Now, John wasn't dreaming, and this is the point that he tries to make here. He heard and he saw the eternal Son of God. But the clincher here is that he touched him. John says, our hands have handled He's saying there is no doubt about it. There is absolutely conclusive proof that God became a man because we touched him, we held him. God was made flesh and dwelt among us, as chapter 1 of John, of the Gospel of John states. The word handled means more than simply just touch. It means examine closely. Jesus lived with them and talked with them and ate with them. Now the words have heard and have seen are in the perfect tense in the Greek while the words have looked upon and have handled are in the aorist tense. This suggests that John could have been referring to the time of his earthly ministry and then specifically to his resurrection appearances with the words have looked upon and have handled. Handle is the same words found in Luke 24:39. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples that were terrified, and he said to them, Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. It was after the resurrection that they gazed upon him and really understood who he was. 
he was truly risen from the grave physically. For Jesus told them to handle him. So the meaning of looked upon or beheld him and handled him probably take on their significance after the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Verse 1 concludes with the phrase concerning the word of life. What is John meaning by this? Well, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, was manifested in human flesh. He is the word, the living word, if you will. The word or logos, which means word in Greek, who is life. But not only could John be indicating this, but it also seems that John, as we see in verse 2, is suggesting that the word of life not only means Jesus Christ, but the message that the apostles proclaimed. The apostles' ministry involved a testimony of what they experienced. John states they bear witness, or they declared it, and they proclaimed it. They declared and proclaimed what they'd experienced. Now, both imply an authority, an authority in what they speak about. What they speak about is truth, and they've personally experienced this truth. And secondly, they share what they've experienced, not only because it's true, but because they've been commissioned to do so, and they've been given the authority to share it with others. Now, what is it that they have experienced, and what is it they declare? It is eternal life, which is personified in the eternal Son who became man. Now, one might ask, why is it that John takes so much time explaining this? Why does John make such a strong statement about Jesus being the eternal Son of God who became physically manifested in the world? Well, it's probably because there were heretics who were troubling the church, false teachers, and they'd been saying that there was a distinction between Jesus, the physical man, and Christ, the Spirit of God. Same heresy that Christian scientists use today. See, John is saying that is impossible. It's impossible to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. God invaded history. The eternal came into time. There is only one person who is fully God and fully man, the eternal Son, Jesus, who became the Savior for you and me. Now, what is the purpose of John or you or me or anyone to proclaim? What's the purpose of proclaiming the good news about Jesus? And John gives us the reason. And the first thing is fellowship. The word in the Greek here is koinonia. We all would say that the purpose of proclamation about Jesus is salvation, but John doesn't say that. He says it's fellowship. Yet John here shows us the full meaning of fellowship. In verse 3, he sees it as twofold. And we'll expand on this later, but essentially he sees it as salvation, that is right relationship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and then becoming a part of the church. John says it in this way, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What he is saying, when we become new people in Christ, through faith in Christ, we become a part of God's family and have an unusual and unique relationship with others who are also a part of God's family, who have trusted in Christ. They become our brothers and sisters. Therefore, human fellowship, true human fellowship, comes as a result of true divine fellowship. Now, another purpose is seen. This is the purpose for the writing of this letter, that your joy may be full. Other translations say are rather than you. It can be either. It means that John may well include his readers along with himself in saying that our joy shall be full by the reading of this letter. A possible reference to Jesus' words in John 4, 36, where Jesus spoke of the sower and the reaper rejoicing together. 
Another example is Paul when he writes to the Philippian church and he says, fill up the cup of my joy. Now John sees that the basis of the Christian life is joy, the fullness of joy. Joy should be the very fabric of the Christian life. Now it seems that John gives a divine order here. He says, we proclaim the gospel, the result is fellowship, but the ultimate result is the fullness of joy. Look at the divine order. Proclamation, fellowship, joy. I'll be back in a moment with the application. Let's look together at some things that we can apply to our lives. The first thing is the importance of proclamation. See, what we're dealing with when we talk about Jesus is not some myth, not some ancient legend that was dreamed up, not some ancient philosophy as a product of man's own thinking. What we're dealing with is that which is truth. It is not simply truth existentially, if you will. That is simply true to you. It is truth. It's historically true. It is a fact in history. God became a man 2,000 years ago. Men touched him, felt him, heard him, saw him, saw him heal the sick, saw him as a risen Lord, and they were willing to die for their faith. Now, men don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. They may die for a lie not knowing it's a lie, but they don't die for a lie they willingly know is one. These men knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the very Son of God, and they proclaimed the message, and they saw that in Jesus was life. So their proclamation itself, as John would say, was life. And declare, verse 2, to you that eternal life. Now, what is happening here is we are literally giving people the opportunity for eternal life when we tell them about Jesus. If we do not tell them about Jesus, we are hopelessly damning them to hell. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that they cannot come to faith without hearing the word of God. And they can't hear the word of God unless there's a preacher. So that brings it right down to this fact. Are you and me, are we together true proclaimers of what Christ has done? Have you shared with somebody else what God has done in your life and allowed them, because of that sharing, to have eternal life? You're the greatest testimony of what God can do, what he's done in your life. Somebody said, well, I don't have all the right theology. That's all right. You'll learn. But you start with what you've got. Proclamation. Radically important because you're giving somebody the option of eternal life when you proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. And secondly, it's interesting to note that John makes the big point of saying we have looked upon or gazed upon beheld all those words seemingly meaning knowing the true significance of who jesus is that word itself seems to bring to mind a good word to use for who a christian really is he's a person who has his eyes fixed on jesus there's a song we sometimes sing in our fellowship turn your eyes upon jesus our whole life should be fixed on jesus we should behold him you see, if we fix our lives on other things, we will ultimately end in destruction. Our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. What does Jesus think about this? What significance is Jesus bringing to this situation? Our whole life has meaning if we have found meaning in Christ. One of the things I think that oftentimes cause many Christians a lot of problems is that they don't see the meaning in certain things in their life. You see, Jesus can give us meaning in everything that happens in our life. Because he's the basis of all of life. And we need to fix our eyes on him. We need to seek him with our whole life. And that brings me to another point, And that's the grave importance of fellowship. Now John here throughout the gospel is going to make this point very clear. But it's a point we have to hear. We talk a lot about witnessing. But the problem is we don't realize that witnessing is not only telling somebody about Jesus. But allowing them to become a part of a family. 
We cannot be content with simply having evangelism unless we're bringing converts into the church, bringing them into the life. In fact, that's the whole reason why there are life groups, is the opportunity to share life with one another. That's why John makes it so clear. We declare this, that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. True fellowship cannot take place outside of a relationship with Christ. Those guys who go to the bars and drink booze with their friends, thinking they're having fellowship, don't know anything about fellowship. Because the real basis of real life and fellowship is found in Christ. And from that basis, we enter into a whole family of loving relationships and caring for one another and sharing our lives with one another and praying for one another and being concerned about one another. It really bothers me about this independence of Christians today. It is the same independence I see in the world. Everybody doing their own thing. And they do that with the church. They become Christians and they think, well, I can just as soon be all right if I'm at home in my own little prayer meeting at home and never become a part of a vibrant fellowship of believers working together for the kingdom of God. That is totally contrary to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10 makes it very clear. Verse 25, it says, Forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. It's important to be a part of a fellowship. I found this so true. If a person gets saved but does not become a part of the church, it won't be long before he is no longer serving Christ. And I found it true that a person who at one time was a part of the fellowship, who ceases to be a part of the fellowship because somebody's hurt them or because of something else, they ultimately end up with a shallow relationship with Christ and lose out with God. It is always that way. Why? Because God made us to be a part of a family. And when we get saved, we become a part of a fellowship. Every one of you in this life group, it's important for you to be a part of this life group and important to be a part of the church if you're going to fulfill all that God has for you. Now we look at something else too. The point of joy. Joy is something that we have. You see, the joy in the world is only for a season. It's a joy that comes if external things are happening okay. But the joy we have is joy that springs from within. It's a joy that can be there even when we're in trouble. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter makes it very clear. He says, my goodness, he says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He's talking about the real joy. And just prior to that, he was talking about how these people were going through persecution, and yet they had joy. Or James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you go through various trials. Joy even in the midst of trials. Joy is something that's a part of our life. We need to be willing to rejoice and be free to rejoice in God. I know so many Christians that get so pent up inside. Why don't you just express your joy? I know when I was a, a little boy, I used to walk around with my dad down the streets, and my dad would be singing and whistling and always joyful and happy. And I'd get a little embarrassed because he was so joyful. And now I begin to realize what that joy is all about. It's the joy of Jesus. And we are the people that have that. Why don't you allow God to just overflow you in joy tonight? Don't let the enemy rob your joy. That's the result of being in Christ and being a part of his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had of sharing this evening. And I pray right now that your word will truly become life to us. We praise you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.